want you to listen this morning to this quote from P.J. Conlon, and it's from the Monthly Journal of International Association of Machinists, and here's what's important. It's dated January 1899. He writes, he said, I say if the public would only stop to consider this before forming an opinion, perhaps the wage earners might win. But no, they believe everything they see in the newspapers. If the newspaper says the sky is painted with green chalk, that's what goes. He said, verily I say unto you, the public is a hot mess. Now, that is, as far as I can tell, in my diligent research, the first recorded instance where the phrase hot mess was used in a metaphorical way and not in a literal way, which used to describe food, hot food, from a military mess hall. Now, I, despite my study, I could not locate how that term hot mess has transitioned into the current phrase hot mess express that lots of people seem to be buying tickets for in our modern culture. So what does that have to do with the Bible? If you look at the storyline of the Bible, it's one continuous redemptive thread throughout there, and it opens up with a picture of perfection in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a new heaven and a new earth and a place of perfection as well. But in the middle between those two bookends is the story of humanity, which we could accurately describe is a hot mess. Amen? One of the things I love about the Bible and that grows my confidence in its accuracy is it does not paint a rose-colored picture of the people in the pages of Scripture. It paints an honest description. Uh, listen, when you read some of the stories in the Bible, uh, Jerry Springer has nothing on them, all right? And so that should grow our confidence in the Word of God. And so what we see is this incredible challenge in between those bookends, those perfection. But here's the good news. God doesn't leave us to ourselves to figure out the messy middle. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. And so under that umbrella fits everything of what it looks like to live for the Lord, to please Him, and to live for wisdom. And so turn with me with that thought in mind to James chapter 4 as we continue our series through uh, the book of James. James has been giving us wisdom in this series on how to close the gap between what we say we believe and what our lives actually look like. And so he's challenged us in the areas of at every turn on how we treat the poor, where we get our wisdom from, how we uh, handle conflict early on, how we respond to trials, chapter one, how we respond to temptation as well. So we've looked at that. And I don't know about you, but as we've walked through this series, I've been asking myself some really hard questions. And I think that's a good thing. And so today, he's going to ask another simple but yet a hard question. Uh, we're going to ask ourselves today, how is it that God actually fits into the plans of your life? So James chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 13 down through 17 this morning. He writes and says, come now you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, we'll spend a year there, we'll trade, we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows to do the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Uh, one of the beautiful things is pastoring a church is there's uh, if the Lord is at work among us, then there should be this supernatural unity amongst incredible diversity. 
If you look around the room this morning, there's all kinds of people in here. There are people who are young. There are people who are not as young as they used to be, right? There are people who have different professions and different trainings and different passions and, and different interests. Listen, there's people in here that love Skyline, people not going to heaven. You know what I'm talking about? There's even, and this is shocking, there's even some weirdos in the room this morning, all right? It's not you, I promise. But the beautiful thing is this, is amongst all of this diversity, the Spirit of God can produce an incredible supernatural unity. And the reason there's so much diversity in the room is because of this, is because we all have the ability to make individual choices. And in reality, for the most part, your life is the sum total of all the choices that you have made. Now, here's the bad news of that. Whether you want to admit this or not, you've fully participated in every bad decision you've ever made. Did you know that? And so because there's this freedom of choice, uh, we have this phrase in our culture that even defending that freedom of choice that we're grateful for, we say this, what? It's a free country. You can make choices with real consequences, good and bad. But, but here's where the tension is that James is going to lean into. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then not only are you a temporary citizen of this great country, but ultimately, you're a citizen of heaven. And all of those benefits and rights of being a citizen come with that, but also so do all the responsibilities of citizenship. And my experience has been this, is what most people want is they want dual citizenship, right? I want all the rights of living here in this country. I want all the rights of heaven. I want all the benefits. But ultimately, our allegiance is to heaven, as citizens of heaven. And so here's what that means. That if my ultimate citizenship is of heaven and I'm a willing servant of Jesus Christ, then I no longer am free to do as I please. Actually, I'm free to obey is what the scripture says. I'm no longer dominated by, by sin, that I'm actually set free from the power of sin so that I can live in a way that pleases Jesus. And because that is true, then for the follower of Jesus Christ, there should be a radical distinction in how the Christian plans their life, what their motives are, what the processes are, and what the desired outcomes are. And so that means that the actual allegiance to Jesus Christ should figure into greatly the planning of my life, both in the short term and in the long term. If God's ultimately in control, and I'm a citizen truly of heaven. So, so we look at these five verses this morning. I want to draw out a few truths this morning in light of that tension that, yes, it's a free country, and I make real choices, real consequences, good and bad, but ultimately, I'm a citizen of heaven, and so how does that figure into the choices that I'm making both in the short term and in the long term? So a few things in the text this morning. Number one, what James is challenging us is not to be a practical atheist. An intellectual atheist is a person who says, hey, intellectually, I, I don't believe in God. Now, the Bible says there aren't any actual real atheists. The Bible says that every man knows of God in his heart. So an atheist says, hey, I don't believe in God. The Bible says, I don't believe in you, right? So an intellectual atheist would argue that, that intellectually, I don't have any uh, recognition that there is a God, there is a creator, but a practical atheist is not that at all. A practical atheist is a person who says, hey, I'm professing a belief in God, but when it comes to the real life that I'm living, the real choices that I'm making, he has no actual bearing in the day-to-day -day life that I'm living. This person treats God like a fancy set of dishes that are only used on certain days of the year, and for the practical atheist, the only time those dishes get laid out and are useful are on Sunday mornings. But outside of that, 
When it comes to their life and their career and their educational choices and who they marry and how they handle their money and fill in the blank, all those real choices in the real life that we're living, they're practicing practical atheism. And James is leaning in hard here this morning. And so to make his point, he used an illustration. He says, hey, there's a couple entrepreneurs here. And these guys are making some plans and they're going to go and buy and sell and they're going to travel to a city and they're going to do all these things. And, and by the way, there's, there's nothing wrong with making plans. The Bible talks about being a steward. About Read the book of Proverbs. God's up on planning. There's nothing wrong with making a profit, taking care of our family's needs, investing in the gospel going forward. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. And so what they're doing in itself is not inherently sinful, right? They've got some plans. They've got some ambition. They've got a good work ethic. There's nothing wrong in the hair. There's just one minor detail that James is going to lean into. There's one missing thing in all this strategic planning, and it's God. There's not one mention in their discussion of how God was going to factor in all this equation. In this illustration, he's painting a picture of people who are going to live as if they could control the outcomes of all their endeavors. As if they were sovereign over all their fears, as if just hard work and opportunity, they could will something to happen apart from God's direction and intervention. Again, the Bible speaks favorably about planning. Luke chapter 14, verse 28 says, For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost? And so he talks about uh, the, the wisdom of that, and it's good to do those things, but when practical atheism comes into mind, what we end up doing, if we're honest, is this. We make all these plans, all these dreams, all these endeavors, ambitions, all these career goals, relationship outcomes, all these things. And if we're honest, what happens is once we get all that in place under the banner of our own wisdom, our own ambition, what we do is this, is we say, Lord, look at all that I've planned. It would be incredibly helpful if you blessed it. Right? You know what happens if you involve God on the front end? Sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, I have, sometimes God jacks up your plans. Amen? And I, if I'm honest, there are times, I don't feel like I have time for that. Listen, my plan was to go and, and work in education and to be a physical education teacher. Why don't we be a physical education teacher? That's a natural outcome of being a physical specimen. Amen? And all of a sudden, I had this collision with Jesus. I'm a senior education major at my university, and I have this collision with Jesus and Tasha. I want to add that in there in the mix as well, all right? And it totally upended my plans. And so there's nothing wrong with planning, but when our plans are apart from God, what happens is we make all these plans with no thought of eternity, no thought of the temporal, how to glorify God, and we just say, Lord, if you would, I would appreciate if you would bless these plans, and if we're honest, when he does it, we can get a little bit, a little bitter, right? And so he's painting this illustration here. And this is the premier passage on what most commentators have called presumptuous planning, planning apart from God, planning as if God does not exist. And yes, I can agree intellectually he does. I can say amen in church. But when it comes to the real life that I'm living, I'm fleshing out a practical atheism where God never factors in the real life that I'm living. And there's a tension here. Listen, you, you don't need to pray and fast this morning before you make your grocery list, okay? 
You know, Lord, I'm going to the grocery. I want to glorify you. Do you want me to get the fruity pebbles? The answer is always yes. Write that down, all right? Yes. But ladies, I do think it's wise that even now, you might start praying even now where you want to go for lunch. Amen, guys? But just consider it. And so we're not talking about being paralyzed by, you know, submitting every single little choice that I make. And listen, God gives me, as I'm pursuing him with my life, God gives me accumulated wisdom to act on. And whatever wisdom I have comes from him. And so there's freedom to make these choices apart from being paralyzed. I haven't prayed about that. I haven't heard from the Lord about that. There's a lot of freedom in the boundaries of the mythological, what we call the perfect will of God. But what does it look like then to live in that tension where God gives me freedom to live and glorify him, but I don't want to live as a practical atheist. Well, what does it look like practically? It always, always starts with motives. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says this, but while man looks upon the outside, God looks upon the heart. That what God's after is not a person who makes all the right decisions. What God is after is a person who has a heart that wants to please him and in some ways you and I as fallen people, fallible people, are going to make some wrong choices along the way. So God's not after perfection, but God's after a heart that wants to please him. And so it starts off with motives. And, and the question is simply this. Whatever decisions you're wrestling through, relationship decision, maybe you're near the end of your career, should I retire, should I hang on, should I get involved in this ministry, should I go on that, whatever it is, the question you should always be wrestling with is this. What would it look like to please the Lord in these decisions? That's what God's after. God is pleased with a heart that wants to please Him, even with a full knowledge that you're going to make some wrong choices along the way. And then practically, in the more life-shaping decisions, so one is a heart posture. I'm just getting up every day and saying, Lord, you give me today. It's a gift. It's an opportunity. What, what would it look like today in all the decisions I'm going to make? My heart wants to please you in all these decisions. But then there's some of those bigger decisions that are life-shaping kind of decisions. So what are the tools that God's given us? I wrote down three here that might be helpful. Uh, number one is prayer. Uh, prayer puts on our hearts what's on the heart of God. You may have not learned this yet, but Prayer is not about changing God's mind. Did you know that? Prayer is not ultimately about changing God's mind. It's about God realigning through the process of submissive, dependent prayer. God aligning my heart with what's on his heart. And so those bigger life-shaping decisions, prayer puts on our hearts what's on the heart of God. Two, you can probably fill in the blanks here, Scripture. Right, the Bible says his word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Scripture reveals to us the ways of God. Scripture reveals to us the character of God. Scripture gives us the guardrails of wisdom. And so these life-shaping decisions, sometimes I'm, I'm praying about that. Sometimes I'm searching the scriptures. Sometimes I'm uh, doing this third thing, which is wise counsel. The book of Proverbs says this. There's safety in the multitude of counselors. What does that mean? You're less likely to make a bad decision when you've ran through the multitude of counselors. And by the way, when you're seeking out counsel, find someone who's doing something that appears to be filled with wisdom. Like if you're na trying to navigate a, a, a dating relationship or, or something serious like that, don't go to the person that they say, hey, you know what? You seem to be uh, have all kinds of relational strife. What do you think I should do? Whatever they say, do the opposite. Amen? 
Don't find the person whose personal finances are a disaster and go to them to help put together your retirement plan. And so we're going to the Lord in prayer. We're going through the wisdom of Scripture as the funnel, the filter, and then we're availing ourselves to wise counsel when we're making these Christ-honoring plans. Now, just for my own curiosity this morning, I'd like to know who's in the room. If you're here and you're a planner, would you just raise your hand up real quick? Just say, hey, I'm a, I'm a planner. Like some of you don't know this right now. The person next to you is like this. You have no idea. Right? Raise your hand. You're a planner. All right? Now, if, you're, if the theme of your life, your theme song is Freebird, which is my favorite hymn, raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep your hand up. Yeah, those of you who are planners, these are the people to judge. Am I right? And so, how do we wrestle? Like, I love planning. I love intentionality. But the danger in being a planning a planner is this, is that you never plan with the eternal in mind. That you invest all of your planning passion for the here and now and, and never think about eternity. And the other danger of being a planner is this, you can get your plans so airtight that not even God can interrupt your plans with a divine appointment. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? The guy's laying on the side of the road, barely alive, and two people walked by him. Why? Because they had a previous commitment they had to get to. And all the while missed a divine appointment. And so how do we manage the tension between being wise planners but not crossing over into practical atheism, whereas if we're behaving, that we're sovereign over all of our lives. And so the answer is in verse 15, where James says this very clearly. Look at verse 15. What does he say? He says, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. They, they used to write at the end of their letters, DV, and that meant Deo Valente, and literally translate out. It means if the Lord wills. Now, if you're from some of the southern states, there's another phrase that also means if the Lord wills. See if this sounds familiar. If the creek don't what? Rise. Yeah, a bunch of hillbillies in here, all right? All of my family's from western Kentucky. I've heard that a time or 200, right? And so what are we saying? We're saying, hey, I want to be a good steward with my life. I want to take all the relationships and the gospel and, and all the tangible resources that God has given me and the, the time here on earth. I want to redeem the time because the days are evil, Ephesians chapter 5. But I also want to live with this tension that whatever plans I make as a steward of the Lord's, what the Lord's entrusted me, I'm living with those things with an open hand. I'm holding on to those things loosely. One of the things the church has done over the years that, that there's good and bad in it, as we've celebrated the stories of those who are pursuing some kind of vocation and, and God, they have a collision with Jesus and they go into full-time missions and we hold that up and say, hey, if you really love Jesus, then you should quit your job too. No, I would argue if you love Jesus, find a way to glorify him in the job you have. But there are times where God says, hey, you, you, can't, you have to spend all of your energies, you were doing this, whatever it was, and now I want to use you in this way. And I love those stories where someone says, man, I was just trucking along in my career I was at the zenith of my career, and then all of a sudden I had a collision with Jesus, and it totally upended my life. You know what that person was saying? As I was cruising along, and things were going well. But if the Lord wills, God, I'm holding everything I have loosely. 
And so the challenges, that should not be a cliche to us. Like literally, we, we should be living in that tension of being good stewards, but at the same time, God has total freedom, total permission, total authority to interrupt my life at any point in time if Jesus truly is Lord over my life. And so we have to ask the question, is God really in control of the life that I'm making? Or if we took inventory of the decisions that I make, he really has no bearing. That honestly, I'm just kind of living out this practical atheism where I say yes and amen to the idea of God. When it comes to the real life that I'm living, I just, you know, hands off and I'll let you know if I need you. And it would be real helpful if you bless these things that I'm doing. So James is leaning in hard to that. Now, here's the reality that we're going to challenge the fact Paul Tripp often calls us humans little self-sovereigns. Thinking we're in control of outcomes and, and trying to engineer things. Thinking that we know best. Thinking that if I just run the metrics and projections and work hard, then I can determine the outcome. Anybody lose any money in 2008? Anybody lose? <laughs> Some of you have tears. I don't know what that means. Now, here's the good news. In my investments, uh, I look back at my investments in 2008, I didn't lose anything. Uh, not one dime. You know why? Because I didn't have any. All right? Right? Don't hate the, hate the game. Don't hate the players. That's how that goes, right? Anybody have any plans over the last two and a half years that got interrupted? Hypothetically. Right? You know the beauty of those things? They're hard. I'm not denying the hardship of living through those things, recessions and pandemics, all those things. But the beauty is it is a loud and clear reminder that how much little control I have over my life. But the good news is I serve a God who's sovereign over all those circumstances and it is for my good. And as a father who gives good gifts to his children, praise his name. When we talk about making plans for our lives, here's a little warning. You may bump into the idol of control. Last week, we talked about the check engine lights. Remember that? We talked about that these behaviors in our life serve kind of like check engine lights. The check engine light on your car isn't the problem. It's letting you know that under the hood or somewhere else, there's a problem going on. Our behaviors are the same thing. Our behaviors are... Nothing more than the check engine lights that something's going on under the hood of our hearts. And when we talk about the idea of planning and living you know, loosely with our plans and letting the Lord interrupt our plans and letting Him be sovereign over our lives, there are two common check engine lights to let us know that an idol of control has set up shop in our hearts. So listen to these. It's very important. Number one is anger. Anger is often the check engine light going off that you have furiously sought to control something and when it feels like you're not going to be able to control it or engineer the outcome, then guess what happens? We get angry. We get angry. Now, if you're here and you said, I've never gotten angry when I couldn't control an outcome, here's what I know about you. You don't have any children. Amen? <laughs> right? And so anger can be a check engine light that I have an idol of control in my heart. The other check engine light I would offer, one is anger. Number two is despair or fear. 
when despair or fear becomes the ruling desire of my life, what happens, what I'm saying is this. Either A, God's not sovereign, or B, He's not for me. Either He can't control the outcome of this circumstance, or He could, but for whatever reason, He doesn't seem to want to in my life. And both of those things are against the character of God. And so the check engine lights, warning you to stop trying to play God. Stop trying to live as a practical atheist. Uh, one of our pastors this week came with this phrase. He said, write your plans in pencil and then get God the eraser. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time there this morning because that's where the rubber really meets the road. Listen, if you don't settle this on a heart issue, these next two things, it doesn't even matter. All right, so these next two things, the overflow of settling that uh, in your hearts. And so James shifts gears from 13 and 14 says, hey, don't live like this. And then in verse 14, he asks a very pastoral and sobering question. Look at verse 14. Look at this phrase in verse 14. What does he say? What is your life? Is that not a sobering question? And in asking that question, I think he's trying to remind us, first off, the second truth this morning, which is this, is that life is brief. Most of us don't like to think about our limited time here on earth. But yet that does not discount the Bible's wisdom when it says, Lord, teach us to number our days so that, cause and effect, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But we don't like to think about that. And so sometimes I, I spend a lot of time around a variety of people, all kinds of life stages in pastoral Ministry, and here's what I've noticed. See if you notice as well. The younger generation wants everything to move faster. You remember when you were younger, like, oh, I can't wait till I get to, you know, fill in the blank, I'm getting high school, I can't wait to get in the student ministry, I can't wait to get my license, I can't wait to graduate, I'm gonna get out there and you know, do all these things because being an adult's easy, blah, 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 right? I'm not, anyway, like, right? I can't wait to fill in the blank. And they just want life to speed up. You know what older people want? Slow down. You know how I know that? Because I've driven behind them, praise God. <laughs> the day I'm driving behind so I thought, what is going on here? And I said that in the form of a prayer. I just, you know, Lord. And I look back and there's a lady. I don't know if she's sitting on a box or not. She just down the road, right? I feel terrible. I just ran her off the road. I was in a hurry. I just... Now, why is that? Because the young bucks think they're going to live forever. And the OGs know I'm in the fourth quarter. I want to slow down and, and, and enjoy this. And so here's what he's asking. What is your life? The book of Ecclesiastes talks a lot about life. And, and here's the author's conclusion when he looks at life. Uh, he says, it's all vanity. What he's referring to is that life is fleeting and temporal on this side of heaven. What he's saying is don't, don't attach all your affections to what's going on on this side of eternity. What should greatly capture the affections of your heart is what's going on on the other side of eternity. Now, how do you know if something that's really captured your affections, how do you know that clearly? It's real simple. What's actually driving your life? And if your life is the sum total of the decisions you make, what's driving the decisions that you make in your life? Interesting, in the 
Hebrew word for vanity, when the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's all vanity, it's the Hebrew word habel. And it is found 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know what another rendering for habel is? It's the word we see here in James chapter 4 translated vapor. James says it like this in verse 14. He, after he poses the question, what's your life? Then he goes on to say, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here's the picture that he's painting. Everybody look up here. As much as you try to will it to not happen, in a few weeks from now, you're going to go out one morning and you're going to be able to see your breath. You know what I'm talking about? Now, some of you are like, nope, actually, I'm going south. We went in. Listen, no one likes you, okay? But for the rest of us, you know, you walk out and you breathe out that cold air, and there's a fog, and you breathe it out, and then it's gone that fast. Here's what he's saying He says, that's a good picture of your life on this side of eternity. You know the phrases the Bible used to describe our life? It's a blade of grass, a puff of smoke, a mist, a vapor, all fleeting and temporal things. And so in light of that, what James said, hey, you should consider that. Uh, what should I do in light of that? Here, here's what that means. That if that is really true, and it is true, then I should take everything that I have, every resource, every influence, every I should take everything up. If that's true, that my life is and gone, that I should take everything that God's entrusted with me and aim it at heaven. That I would take all that God's entrusted with me and say, hey, this life is fleeting, nothing wrong with enjoying it, the good gifts that God gives us, but if it's here today and gone tomorrow in light of eternity, then I should take all of these things I've been entrusted with and aim them towards heaven because that's the only thing that's going to last. And so what does that look like practically? And just FYI, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling a little bit, okay? Instead of worrying about managing your money to maintain a certain standard of living, you start managing money out of a deep concern that people are going to hell. Instead of managing your schedule, the great concern that your kid may not be able to hit a baseball, you start managing your schedule with the concern that one day they're going to stand before the Lord. And while that may sound radical compared to the often nominal, superficial Christianity we see played out in America, it is the normal outcome for a person who really believes what verse 14 is preaching. He's saying, hey, if this gets a hold of your heart and you think your life is a mist, a vapor, a puff, a cloud of smoke, a blade of grass, if you really believe that, then take all that God's entrusted with you and enjoy all the good gifts, but at the end of the day, aim it all towards heaven. If you really believe that's what he's saying, your life is short. Pastor David, who leads our Lebanon campus, he has a friend who Study the age at which the men in his family have lived. The average age of the men in his family tree. And it said he averaged their age together and used that to, average the, to determine the likelihood of how long he's supposed to live. 
And he's taken that age and developed a countdown clock in his office that tells him how many days he has left on earth by the averages of his family. Now, some of you are like, hey, that's kind of morbid, right? <laughs> you know what else it is? It's intentional. It's to say, hey, my life, and I want to steward every day well. I want to live for God's glory well. And so church, let's let verse 14 get soul a hold of our hearts today, that that's the attitude with which we live, that I'm not guilty that I've been born in a country of prosperity. I'm grateful. I'm not guilty that I've got these things that God's allowed me to enjoy and I've been generous and haven't had to forfeit my integrity to obtain them. But at the end of the day, all these things are nothing more than tools to serve Christ and to advance his gospel until the whole world hears. And so he says, one, he says, your life is short. And then the second thing is a result of that. He says, because your life is short, here's the last truth, because your life is short, do the right thing. James says in verse 17, look at it. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, we understand sins of commission, like, hey, you shouldn't lie, and I go lie anyway. A sin of omission is something that I know I should be doing this, and for whatever reason, I, I'm, just, I'm just putting it off. Listen, the sin of omission, here's a better way to think about it. It is spiritual procrastination. And do you know why we spiritually procrastinate? Because we're not really convinced that in fact our life is that short. We think, hey, I've got lots of time to reconcile that relationship. And then you see their name in an obituary. I've got lots of time to go on that mission trip. And then your health fails you where you can't. I've got lots of time to start reading my Bible. I'll wait till the new year to really start on those spiritual goals. I've got time to be present with my family when I get to this stage of my career. Remember that great hymn of the faith, the cat in the cradle? Anybody remember that? You know the time to love your family? It's today. So James says, hey, for he that knows to do the right thing and does it not, to him it is sin. It's spiritual procrastination, the sin of omission. Now, we can apply that to every area of the Christian life. One day I'll be generous when I start paying this down or get to this stage of my career, blah, blah, whatever, the, you know, fill in the blank. One day I'll live for the Lord when my schedule frees up. Then I'll serve him. Then I'll, you know, all these kind of things. But let's circle back to the context of the passage. <clears throat> and the context of this text is planning and viewing our lives in light of eternity. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, if you really believe that your life is a puff of smoke and gone, if you really believe that, then why in the world would you spiritually procrastinate of something that you know the Lord is calling you to do today? And so James is leaning in here, and here's what he's saying, those practical I can put this. 
Some of you, when I mentioned that, like I don't have to give examples, like kind of jog your Some of you, when I said that, something came to mind immediately because it's something you've been putting off for a long time and you've justified in your mind while you're putting off a long time. And here's what Pastor James is saying. To he that knows to do good, to, to him, does it not, to him it is sin. Why should we heed his counsel? Because life is short. What's the most painful thing you've ever experienced in your life physically? So we've had maybe horrific accidents or something like that. I don't know. I thought about this week. I've had, you know, I've just been fortunate. I've not had a lot of injuries, those kind of things. But I remember being about eight years old and wrecking a dirt bike. I remember being 18 years old. Now, <laughs> this is in my notes. I probably shouldn't share this. You want to hear it? Just anybody? <laughs> Only takes one. All right, so... 18 years old, I'm an adult filled with wisdom. And so what does every 18-year-old filled with wisdom do? I'm going to get a tattoo. And I did. And he said, what do you want? And here I am, six feet tall, muscular. I sort of want an Aztec sun on my ankle. And then years down the road, I met someone else who had the exact same tattoo. I mean exact, in the same spot, same size, a little different color, exact same one. Only problem is this, it's my sister-in-law. <laughs> I'm convinced that Tasha's mom told her and her brother, go out, you know, like Abraham and Rebecca, find the one who's going to draw the water out of there. Go out and find the one with the sun tattoo on their ankle. That's what they were told. <laughs> and, and I remember sitting there and a lady tattoo artist comes out in downtown Miamisburg. And I'm thinking, here I am, I got this tattoo, not incredibly masculine tattoo. Right between that and a dolphin. I wasn't sure. I thought, no, I... <laughs> and a lady comes out. And my buddies are there with me. <laughs> and the skin on your ankle is not very thick. And she laid into me with that tattoo gun. And I mean, tears coming down my eyes. And the big burly dude is like... But are you okay? I'm like, I'm great, right? I couldn't. Painful. Pain. I remember thinking at one point, you know what makes this feel better? Just put one across my neck while we're here. Painful. You know the most painful pain anybody here has experienced, and you've got stories, and some are real ones, not funny ones, is the pain of regret. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. You know what Pastor James would say to us today? Do something. Don't put off doing good because your life is a vapor. It is a vapor. Live with gospel urgency if you really believe these things. We're way over time. You're welcome. Now, why don't, why, don't, why don't we do that? Well, you don't have to wonder why. The answer is in verse 16. Verse 16, look what he says. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You know why we don't? Because the pride of us says, I'm in charge of how my life turns out. I'm going to engineer the outcome. In the room this morning, there are Christians and non-Christians, both of us battling pride. And the Christian who's battling pride often 
falls into practical atheism. I'll do that later because I'm in control of how my life turns out. And the non-Christian in the room is battling pride as well, saying not only do I not need Jesus in my plans, I don't need him in my plans to go to heaven. And the answer for both of us this morning is to repent and lay ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And the good news is this. All who run to Jesus make it. Would you bow your heads this morning? Your head bowed this morning. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not sure if you do, listen. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The Bible says don't brag about tomorrow because you do not know what a day will bring forth. And I'm not talking about fear-mongering or scary stories. What I'm saying is this. Your life is short. Don't risk eternity putting off accepting Jesus as your Savior for another day. Today is the day. You're not here by accident. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you come and confess your sins right in your seat? You don't have to move anywhere in the room. There's no magical place in the room. Right where you're at, would you confess your sins? Would you have a desire to repent or turn for them? And would you receive Jesus Christ by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you receive Jesus as your Savior today? For those of you who have already done that, here's a simple question. Is there anything in your life that you know what the Lord wants you to do? And you're putting it off, thinking that one day I'll make it right. I can't say it better than James says it. To he who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. By faith. Would you tell the Lord right now, by faith, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. By faith, I'm going to obey. Whatever it is, career change, reconciling relationship, sharing Christ with someone, start serving, whatever it is, by faith right now, would you tell the Lord, I'm scared, but by faith, I'm choosing to obey. Lord, we're grateful that as hard as life can be, you've given us your word that reveals your son. The Bible says Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so, Lord, everything we need for life and godliness is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the revelation of your character in the Bible. And so, God, help us this week, empower us through Christ in us to live as if we really believe these truths. And whatever spiritual progress we make, we give you in advance all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray because we can. Amen.